Uh, I love that song. At the beginning of the, the pandemic last year, I had imagined, maybe we had all imagined that, oh, it may last a month or... And I said to Bobby, I said, we need to sing that song when we all come together on Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> but that song moves me. Christ, our hope in life and death. And I was feeling it, and we were all feeling it, the, the uncertainty of what that pandemic meant. And some of you have lost loved ones. But Christ is our hope in life and death. Amen. Well, let's uh, turn in our Bibles, uh, the Gospel of John, as we wrap up our, our journey through this Gospel this morning. John chapter 21, uh, verses 20 through 25, sort of like a postscript on the Gospel. Let's give our attention to God's Word as it is read, John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, Church Bible 907 to 908, that's where you'll find it. The setting is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, having been raised from the grave, has appeared to his disciples. There was a miraculous catch of fish. Jesus um, speaks to Peter, asks him, do you love me? He exhorts him, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, three times. And it seems like they're taking now a walk down the beach together down the shore of the sea. We pick it up at verse 20. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who, it is, who is it that is going to betray you? Well, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. Would you uh, join me in a prayer as we ask for the Lord's help in this time? Father, this book that you have given to us, this word, it's been given to us to point us to your son, to make us aware of our desperate need for a savior in him. And as this book, this particular book of the Bible, what is told about him has been given so that we may believe that he is the Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that that faith will be strengthened even now as we look at this particular passage. Lord, we know that uh, the word itself, the word that you have spoken, that's where the power is. A mere man cannot accomplish the things of God. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work by your Holy Spirit of planting that word in our hearts and bringing about the change that you desire in each of us. Help me as the proclaimer. 
to speak only what is helpful. And that as a result of this, glory would go to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. <clears throat> a, uh, a local police officer once uh, described to me the dangers of a traffic stop on a freeway. Some of you are familiar with this. Uh, when there's a police cruiser on the side of the road with lights flashing, especially at night, that can become a focal point for approaching drivers. And the reason why is that you tend to, uh, it's, it's a natural sort of inclination to steer your vehicle into the direction you're looking. So if the police cruiser and the car pulled over to the side of the road is your focal point, then it's not hard to see why it's dangerous for police officers at the side of the road. And I read an article, in fact, just to back this up. I was curious about it, if that was true. And uh, it was in a law enforcement blog. The officer there quoted was more fearful of being hit by other cars on the side of the freeway than actually getting shot. I do remember this principle from driver's ed when I took that so long ago. If you focus on, on the center line or if you focus on the, the line at the side of the road or the ditch, you're, you're going to pull towards that, aren't you? And that's why you're taught. You look down the road in the direction that you want to go. You drive, you keep your focus where you're going. So if you want to go in the right direction, it matters where you're looking, doesn't it? And the same is true of following Jesus. The same is true of our, our discipleship. Are you looking in the right direction? Discipleship involves believing in Jesus, but believing in Jesus involves looking in the right direction so that we can appropriate follow. Now, as we wrap up this, this journey through this gospel, I'm going to remind you of John's objective, even as I prayed, the Holy Spirit's purpose, and in fact, giving John the inspiration was really to introduce us, the readers, the hearers of this message, to introduce us to Jesus so that as a result of hearing about him and knowing about him, that we could have eternal life in his name, believing that he is Christ, the Son of God. So believing in Jesus, of course, is, is believing the facts about Jesus. It's believing who he is as the Son of God. It's believing what he did, how he died and rose again. It's believing why he died. That is to say that he died to save us from the consequence of our own sins. That's part of it. And believing in Jesus, as we talked about last week, is, is ultimately loving Jesus. But the life of a disciple, the life of a believer, is a life of following. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower of Jesus. Believing in Jesus is following him. The two are necessarily con connected. Following Jesus means we go where he goes. We do what he does. We take to heart what he says. And to effectively follow Jesus, it matters where we're looking. Now, from our Bible passage, I have three exhortations for how to believe and follow Jesus, which I take out of this text, and you'll see how I got them as we uh, unpack each point. But I'll give them to you up front. Three exhortations for how to believe and follow Jesus. First of all, don't look at others. Second, don't be distracted by false ideas. And third, focus on the Christ of Scripture. Don't look at others. Don't be distracted by false ideas and focus on the Christ of Scripture. That's how we believe and follow Jesus. Believing in Jesus is following. So first of all, don't look at others. Don't look at others. 
There's a game that uh, we play in my family. It's called Dutch Blitz. Some of you are familiar with the game. If you know the game, the, really the objective is to get rid of the cards in your 10 pile first. If, if you're good at the game, you figured out how to do this. One of the temptations when you're playing is to look at your opponents and see their cards and see what they're going to play so you could put your card down. That's a sure way to lose the game. And you take your focus on what you're supposed to be doing. You're looking at your opponents. You're going to lose. You have to keep your focus on what you're doing. You can't look at other players or worry about what they're doing. And in the same way, more importantly, by looking at him, not at what other followers are doing. Now look at our text. The disciple whom Jesus loved. John's self-reference. It's his way of referring to himself in the gospel. And, and why does he do that? I just I, I thought I should include this, but it has been suggested by some commentators that his self-reference as the disciple whom Jesus loved is a way of avoiding I or I am because Jesus makes I and I am statements, so he doesn't want to confuse himself with Jesus. He's the author of this book, but he doesn't want to confuse himself and his I statements with Jesus. In fact, the gospel records several occasions where Jesus makes these important I and I am statements. For example, I am the bread of life. I and the Father are one. So these are vitally important. And John doesn't want to identify himself with that by using I. That's one of the reasons given. Be that as it may, this is how he refers to himself. So John is following Peter and Jesus as they walk down the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. And John, in the text here, tells us what he heard. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, that is John, he said to Jesus, that is Peter, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus' answer said to him, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, what might... Peter be referring to regarding John in this text. I think it's safe to make some inferences here. Jesus had just told Peter how his own death by martyrdom, probably by crucifixion, would glorify God. And maybe Peter's there wondering, how's John going to die? Is he, is he going to be a martyr too? And so Jesus' response effectively is, none of your business. Well, that's what me might say. If it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? Jesus' answer is, this is not your concern, Peter. Don't worry about John. You follow me. And it seems to me as I looked at that, there's some comparison going on. See, rather than look at his own life as a disciple, Peter's looking at John. The point is that Peter is concerned too much with John and not enough with his own calling to follow. Now, if we look at ourselves, if we take an honest look at ourselves, I think we'll find that at times we're not much different than Peter. How many times have we thought about fellow, fellow believers? What about this man? What about her? Now, we could look around the room right now. Everyone has a unique discipleship experience. And we might be tempted to make comparisons. And some of those comparisons are, are quite superficial, right? Why is she so gifted? Why is she so pretty, so fit? Or why do they have such nice things? Superficial. Others are more values-based. Why do their children seem so well-behaved? Why do they grow up believing and mine abandon the faith? 
Why are mine terrors if you've got young ones? How come their kids got scholarships? Why do they have such a strong marriage and mine is a mess? Some of those comparisons have to do with grief and loss and suffering. Why do others go through life without suffering like me? Some of them are maybe comparisons of abilities. I wish I could teach or lead or sing or serve like that other person. The fact is that all of these things, all that you have experienced in your life, the abilities that you have, your life circumstances, all of these have been ordained by God. And you know what? Even the moment of our death, we don't get to decide those things. The psalmist says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So maybe this morning you've been blessed with significant talent and gifting. Looking at others is a temptation towards spiritual pride, like the Pharisee in the the parable that Jesus told. That Pharisee had spiritual pride leading to self-righteousness that seeks justification of self by comparing ourselves with others. Jesus told the parable to illustrate how insidious it is, and he said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the point of that parable was to teach who is justified. But the example there is that spiritual pride happens when we compare ourselves. The only reason you would have a feeling of superiority is because you're looking around and not looking at Jesus. We cannot effectively believe and follow Jesus if our focus is on others. Can't happen. The Apostle Paul wrote this to believers. To guard us. Take this exhortation to heart. For by the grace given to me, sorry, Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The Apostle Paul is effectively saying what Jesus said. Follow Jesus. Don't look around and compare yourself. Where are you looking? As a disciple of Jesus this morning, where are you looking? Don't look at others. Jesus says, you, follow me. Second, to believe and follow Jesus, we got to make sure that we're not distracted by false ideas. Don't be distracted by false ideas. Now, I wonder if anybody here remembers what you were doing on October 21st, 2011. Anyone? Probably not. And why would you think it's a significant day? Actually, it turned out to be a day like pretty much any other. In the news, uh, President Obama announced that all the troops would be withdrawn from Iraq by the end of that year. But there were others, perhaps even thousands of others, who held that day in anticipation of that day. They were followers of one Herald Camping. It was supposed to be a really important day. Camping was a civil engineer turned evangelist and radio host. He eventually became the the president of Family Radio. According to Harold Camping, back on October 21st, 2011, that was supposed to be the day the world ended, the final judgment of Christ. 
Clearly, that didn't happen. And sadly, he led a lot of people to believe his erroneous teaching. And they became distracted from truly following Christ. Christians have often allowed themselves to be distracted from following Christ by false ideas, false ideas. And in our text, John, the gospel writer, corrects one such idea, verse 23. In response, Jesus saying, if he is to remain until I come, what is that to you? Verse 23, so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? The key here is that so the saying spread among the brothers. We may have a real sense of how idealistic that time was when Jesus was first raised from the dead, but false ideas even gripped the hearts of people in the beginning of the early church. The idea spread. The brothers, fellow Disciples of Jesus believed an idea, a false idea, and it began to circulate and it caught on. So why would such an idea spread? I think it was speculation. Speculation. Now, if we, if we go to Jesus' ministry and the things that he taught, Jesus said that he could return any time, but he said, no one knows the day or the hour. And I take it that maybe fueled by some hopefulness, Early disciples had the sense that Jesus' return would be imminent, like literally any time. And, and if we were to meet in the first century disciples of Jesus and say, you know, coming from future and coming back and say, you know, it's going to be at least 2,000 years, I think it would have blown their minds. Two millennia, it would have blown their minds. So when Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, they drew this conclusion based on speculation that it was, that was not necessary from Jesus' statement. Now, it's likely at the point of this writing that, that Peter has already been martyred. I think that's probably happened. And John is now much older and closer to his own death. And he's trying to ensure that the disciples of Jesus don't lose their confidence in Christ because of a false interpretation of Jesus' words. You see, if they believe that false idea that John would not die, something Jesus supposedly said in their minds, they could lose their confidence in Christ. So he has to fix it. He has to make sure that the idea does not spread. Corrects the record to counter the rumor. Disciples of Jesus are to look to Jesus, not some false idea that someone had concocted about John not dying. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's always a potential for false ideas to distract us from truly following Jesus. And in the case of John and, and those that were rumored, rumoring about the fact that he wouldn't die or that the idea that he wouldn't die, false ideas arise from speculation. When we try to find answers to things that are not for us to know, that's a distraction. That was the error of Harold Camping. Jesus explicitly said, no man knows the day or the hour. Apparently, Camping did not think Jesus meant what he said. So he put his energies into proving, surprisingly, that Jesus was wrong. Now, just to be accurate with the historical record around Harold Camping, just before he died, not long before, he did acknowledge his error. He did acknowledge to having led many people astray. False ideas arise from speculation, things that we're not meant to know, not given to know. But secondly, 
false ideas arise from an ignorance of Scripture. And so here's a contemporary example. That insurrection that took place on January 6th, that was understandably disturbing and unsettling for many. But to me, one of the most disturbing things was to hear that some who were involved in that insurrection were bearing Christian symbols, holding signs that said, Jesus saves, while they stormed the Capitol. It disturbed me that anyone professing to be Christian, that somehow storming the Capitol had anything at all to do with the disciple-making mission that Jesus called us to. Ignorance of Scripture leads people to do things and believe things that are just not true. The, the Bible does not call us as Christians to attempt to overthrow even, even the most evil of regimes. And I know perhaps there are some among us who have some sympathy because of perceived injustices, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says to those who might think this way. Romans 13, 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul says, Submit to those in authority over you. He describes those that are in authority have been established by God. Paul is in the Roman Empire. And at the time of writing Romans, it's probably Nero who's the emperor. One of the most wicked emperors there ever was. He says, submit to him. And in the end, it was probably Nero that had the apostle Paul beheaded. False ideas arise from speculation and ignorance of scripture. And they distract us from following Jesus. False ideas also arise from the misapplication of Scripture. Misapplication. Not only ignorance, but misapplication. So there's a New Testament example. The Apostle Paul gave this instruction to Titus. He told them, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He gave a similar instruction to Timothy. The controversies were, among other things, about the law. So think of Ten Commandments or the Levitical Code. These false teachers had corrupted the gospel. They were men who were dealing with the scripture but misapplying it. Paul deals sharply with what he calls Judaizers in Galatians. He said, if anyone comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one that you have heard from me, let him be condemned. Harsh words. False ideas derived from the misapplication of scripture or selective readings have in extreme cases result, resulted in very destructive cults. And all you have to do is look through fairly recent history. Jim Jones, he began as an ordained minister in the Assemblies of God. Was it 900 people were murdered or committed mass suicide by drinking the Kool-Aid? He was one who began to preached the gospel, but a false idea grabbed hold of him, and he led many people astray. David Koresh, likewise. Branch Davidians, a Seventh-day Adventist, off-branch of the Seventh-day Adventist cult, claimed to be some kind of Messiah. How many died in that raid? False ideas can be distracting and downright dangerous for disciples of Jesus. 
Now, there are other false ideas that seem less physically deadly, but equally have eternally lethal consequences. For example, the false gospel of the so-called word faith movement. They propagate the idea that Jesus came into the world not so much to free you from bondage and consequence of sin, but to give you comfort and wealth and well-being in this life, healing. That's dangerous. It's a false idea that has gripped many and led many astray, distracted them from following Jesus. More, uh, maybe closer to home, Jim uh, Wamhoff uh, in our elders' uh, retreat reminded us last Friday of what happens in evangelical, has happened in many evangelical churches. There are many in so-called evangelical churches that have been distracted from truly following Jesus because of the misapplication of Scripture or maybe the selective teaching of topics that just people want to hear. There was a sociologist some years ago. Uh, he's at Notre Dame now, I believe. Sociologist Christian Smith. His book was called Soul Searching. He coined this term called moralistic therapeutic deism to effectively describe the religious beliefs of evangelical teenagers. That's our kids in conservative churches. He surveyed them for his book that he published. Now, there's no teenager in the group that was studied would embrace the label moralistic therapeutic deism. They wouldn't, but it's just what he called it. But here was the general belief system of these teenagers that grew up in evangelical churches. Here's the religion. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. We can agree with that, I think. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, the most dangerous of all, good people go to heaven when they die by the standards. This is evangelical churches. And I would submit to you it's because Scripture was misapplied or selectively taught. It's moralistic because it's about being good. It's therapeutic because it makes me feel good. And it's deism. There's some God out there, but he's not really personally involved. It's not hard to see why among many so-called evangelicals today, it's not hard to see why today many in the evangelical church, perhaps many in our own group of churches, have no issue at all with sexual promiscuity. They have no issue at all with homosexual acts and relationships. They have no issue at all with transgenderism and anything else that the sexual revolution has offered up. Because, number three, the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. See, it's a false idea. And it's taken hold in the church. And it distracts from following Jesus. You see, for, for so-called Christians to embrace and indeed celebrate the things that God hates, things that the Bible clearly prohibits. For so-called Christians to do that is ultimately to make yourself an enemy of God and ultimately reject Jesus as the one who came to set us free from enslavement to sin, all sin. So where are you looking this morning? 
Don't be distracted by false ideas. Jesus says, you follow me. Well, what's the remedy to this? What's the remedy? To believe and follow Jesus, we must focus on the Christ of Scripture. Focus on the Christ of Scripture. Uh, some of you may recognize the phrase, and now for the rest of the story. You have to be a little bit older. But that line was coined or used by a, a radio personality, Paul Harvey. He was a skilled story, storyteller. He would use that line as a way to, uh, to build anticipation as his audience for his final words after the commercial break. And you can still find some of his most famous stories on YouTube. His, what his technique did, it, it seized on the natural human curiosity that something is missing in the story. It's not complete. And it's the very thing that compels journalists and historians to write articles and, and tell a version of history about matters that have already been covered by others. We have that sense that there is more to know. We want to know the rest of the story. Now, for his part, John, our gospel writer, the evangelist here, he acknowledges in his gospel this curiosity in all of us. Indeed, there is so much about the life of Jesus we do not know. Even the record that we have beyond this gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and whatever we can glean from the epistles, it's hardly exhaustive. We know little of Jesus' infancy beyond his birth. We have one story when he was about 12, and then nothing at all until his public ministry at 30. And John, he acknowledges the impossibility of, of recording everything about what Jesus did and the implications of those works. In the very last verse of this gospel, verse 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I don't want to leave us in that tension, but, but the point here is that I believe he's making is that what is important, what is essential for us is not what we do not know. We don't need the rest of the story. Rather, what we need to do is trust that what has been written is everything that we need to know. Trust that what has been written is everything that we need to know. We back it up a verse, verse 24. John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he's summarizing what he has written. So first, John identifies himself as the witness, the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who leaned back against Jesus in the upper room before Jesus was betrayed. And then what he does is he makes a, a very concise case for the reliability of his own witness. He tells the reader, he tells us that his words can be trusted, that as a personal and present witness, he has authority to tell the story. John is confident in his own testimony, therefore we should be too. He is confident in his own testimony, therefore we should be too. Now, <laughs> that may sound like circular reasoning, reasoning to uh, modern ears. He's saying, trust me because I'm trustworthy. Yet, yet, we can be confident in John's testimony because it does agree with the testimony of the other disciples. Even though the other disciples and the other gospel writers have maybe a different perspective and include different details. There is no contradiction between the Gospels. And in fact, all that John has written, 
is not contradicted by the other gospel writers, and he does not likewise contradict anything in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So for us, the reader, for us, the hearer of the gospel, we can be confident that everything that we have in John's gospel is everything that we need. And this is effectively the point that he made back in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is, this is John's thesis statement for the gospel. Effectively saying what he's saying in the last verse. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John gets it. It's an impossible task to record everything that Jesus did because the implications of all that he did have infinite reach. So when he says, I suppose that the world could not contain all the books, it's not just about what Jesus did, but it's the effect of what Jesus did. And in the end, it's not what we need. Because he says, these have been written that you may believe. Jesus says, follow me. How? Well, let me ask you the question. Where are you looking? You see, we're tempted to follow what the world does, right? That the temptation is always put before us. The world regularly paints a picture of Jesus that co-opts him for their own purposes. Jesus the healer. Yes, Jesus came into the world. Yes, he healed people of disease, but that was not his mission. He didn't come to heal people from disease. His healing authenticated that he had a message that he came from the Father. His mission in the world was primarily to cure us from the deep disease of sin by taking its consequence upon himself at the cross. The world paints for us Jesus, the social justice warrior. And certainly Jesus cared about injustice, but fixing the world's inequities was not his mission. He prepared his followers by saying this, in the world, you'll have trouble. He didn't call out the emperor to change his ways. He didn't call for an overthrow of the government. He just told his disciples, in this world, you'll have trouble. The world paints the picture of Jesus, the political liberator. Jesus did not come to the world to upend political systems and implement some Marxist ideals, as some have claimed. Some embrace Jesus, the patriot and freedom fighter, and I would say, to some extent, those that were part of that attempted, um, whatever you call it at the Capitol, the, the uproar, carrying Jesus saves signs. They were not looking at the Christ of Scripture. America is not a Christian nation. Certainly blessed. This is not the promised land. The error of those who stormed the Capitol carrying Jesus saves signs. The error of the, those who were involved in the Crusades in the Middle Ages. No different. No, the right understanding of Jesus comes from this book. We must focus on the Christ of Scripture. We look for Jesus in this book, the Bible, the Word of God. So where are you looking this morning? That's why we read this book. That's why we teach and preach from the Bible. This 
This book, this Bible, this, this word of God, it defines us, it informs us, it guides us, it changes us into the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus that he wants us to be. We look for Christ, not in some idea, but in the scriptures, because these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These have been written. Let me ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus this morning? Are you a disciple? Because if not, if not, you will perish. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who believes in Jesus, somebody who loves Jesus. A disciple of Jesus understands that Jesus is the Son of God, who came into the world, who lived in sinless perfection, who died unjustly at the hands of men. That that death on the cross, on that Roman cross, was regarded by God the Father as full payment for sin for all who would look to him in faith. That that same Jesus was buried in a tomb, killing the power of sin for all who've trusted in him. And when he emerged from the tomb on the third day, he guaranteed for all who believe in him eternal life and fellowship with his Father forever. If if you have not believed in Jesus to this point, let me urge you, trust him today. Become a disciple of Jesus by believing in him. Because if you reject him, you will perish. Well, Jesus will come again. But his second coming will not be a quiet re-entry into the world. On that day, the Bible tells us that his coming will be announced with a trumpet. On that day, every knee will bow. On that day, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. On that day, he will subdue the nations and gather to himself a people from every tongue and tribe and nation on the earth. On that day, he will judge the living and the dead. But until that day, until he is revealed to the world in all of his glory, we follow. We follow, as it says in Hebrews, by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We follow Jesus who for joy suffered for us. And our following him in this world may indeed involve suffering, some greater, some lesser. But we won't be able to follow if we're always looking at others. And we won't be able to follow if we're going to be distracted by false ideas, things that are not in the world. The way we follow him is by looking for him in the scriptures where he is clearly presented for us. We see him in the world, in the word.
And I trust. I trust that, that you have believed and indeed followed Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we um, are grateful that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he rose again on the third day. And that we're here this morning, Father, this testimony to the fact that we heard his voice when he said, come follow. So Lord, teach us. Teach us not to be concerned about others and their journey with him. Teach us to be discerning and not be distracted by false ideas. And Lord, teach us that the way that we follow is by looking at your word where he's clearly put on display. Everything has been written for us that we may believe. Thank you that everything has been written. Thank you for John, the disciple of Jesus. Thank you for John, the writer of this gospel. And most of all, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowered him to bring it to us so that we could know Christ and have life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.